Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Security Management Highlights. With this virus, the ability to transmit from person to person is greater than it was with SARS. Uh, with this virus, one person can transmit on average to about 2.3 other people. There are cases of what are called super spreaders, where one person who is uh, able to spread to eight or 10 people and we think that might be what's going on in South Korea. That, that statistic you just referred to is from the Global Terrorism Index, and it measures total deaths from terrorism. Total deaths is actually down more than 52% from the peak, which was in 2014. So having the CPP just sort of demonstrates that, yes, I understand, these concepts and it demonstrates it in a way that's easier for people who aren't familiar with the military or uh, for people who had jobs in the police force. The same thing, uh, the CPP just sort of creates a, that baseline that shows uh, I have this knowledge. All that and more on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. My first guest today is Jerry Hauer, PhD. Jerry is a visiting professor at the Defense Academy of the United Kingdom, Cranefield University. He's also an associate editor at the Journal of Special Operations Medicine and a board of directors member for the World Association for Disaster and Emergency Medicine. Jerry, welcome to the show, my friend. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, today we're going to talk about pandemics. Give us some current stats. Well, we're, uh, we're at about 79,000 cases with about uh, twenty. 800 deaths. I would venture to say by the end of the week, we'll be probably in the area of 2,900 deaths, uh, if not a bit higher, and we'll be well over 80,000 cases. We're going to talk today about this crisis and kind of tie it to something that really everybody needs to think about but doesn't always think about, and that that's business continuity planning. Tell us about our current state of readiness. The Global Health Security Index says that national health security is fundamentally weak, weak around the world. I think the U.S. is probably the most prepared anywhere in the world. I think that um, the Department of Health and Human Services is doing a great job. I think they're doing everything they possibly can under the current circumstances. Uh, recognizing this is a new virus uh, that uh, we've not seen before. So there's a lot of activity that has to go on. Part of the concern we have is other countries around the world, particularly underdeveloped countries or countries with less mature public health systems are really vulnerable at this point. We're seeing um, outbreaks in, in Europe, particularly Italy at this point, uh, which is a bit of a concern because Italy's got a a reasonable public health system. Uh, and in the face of that, and in the face of all that's going on in Europe, with the information flow, to see an outbreak like this in Italy is, uh, is, a, is a big concern. So to your point, uh, here's a couple stats. 92% of the 195 countries evaluated do not show evidence of security checks. Fewer than 5% show a requirement to test emergency operations centers annually, and 85% of the countries evaluated showed no evidence 
of completing a biological threat exercise in the past year. So to your point, there's you know there's the top five or ten countries that are really doing well. Yeah, I'm I'm not at all surprised that countries are not doing biological uh, exercises. People tend to focus on what's in the here and now. Uh, they view biological issues as less of a threat until something happens, and then they get caught off guard. I'm a little surprised at what went on in Japan with the uh, Diamond Princess. The Japanese have been focusing on biological terrorism for quite some time, and to have responded to have seen the handling of a cruise ship like this and allowing it to escalate is a bit of a surprise for a country that does take this threat very seriously. So what what could be some of the causal factors there? Is this a matter of people not believing it was as dangerous as it, as it could be or they didn't see the potential? Yeah, I think that um, the escalation of the outbreak in China has been so rapid that there, there are so many unknowns about the virus itself caught a lot of countries a bit off guard. I think that literally every few days, we're getting more scientific data. Uh, just in the last two days, there is a confirmation that the virus will spread from a person that does not have symptoms to other people, which was questioned over the last few weeks. Countries, I think, were waiting for information and watching and not necessarily putting their guard up quickly enough. Jerry, tell me why it's so important to strengthen information sharing among different facilities, medical, veterinarian, health providers. Isn't information sharing one of the weaknesses that could be causing some of this? Well, I think there's two components of information sharing. They're sharing information amongst countries, which is absolutely critical so you can trace where people have moved, who they've been in contact with in other countries. So you can trace where somebody might have been infected and then where they're going and where they might be spreading the virus. Within countries, it's absolutely critical that hospitals uh, have uh, uh, up-to-date information that allows them to put plans in place and to respond appropriately. Very often, at the local level, emergency medical services are the first to make contact with patients, particularly if they're critically ill. So we have to start on the ground uh, with EMS, then to the hospitals, and overarching, we have to have public health communicating with nursing homes, hospitals, EMS. Uh, and other public safety agents to make sure there's coordination should an outbreak escalate into an epidemic in an area. So, Jerry, tell us why business continuity planning usually doesn't consider things like viruses or flus. And, and boy, those things have oftentimes a much higher impact than all the other things we plan for. Yeah, it, when you think about business planning, business continuity planning. It's everything from supply chains. And in this case, with this virus, supply chains are absolutely critical. Um, so many of the ingredients 
for drugs that are critical for treating people around the world come from China. The business impact in medicine, medical devices, uh, if this thing continues for a long period of time, is going to have quite an impact. When you think about supply chains, just one small component, you then have to think more importantly than anything else about your people. You have to be able to protect your people. You have to have plans in place to protect your people. You have to have plans in place for them to do work at home so that they can maintain the operation of the business without being exposed to the virus, exposed to people with the virus in mass transit, in public uh, gathering places. Those are things you want to avoid in an outbreak. Anywhere where there's large groups of fake people, you have to realize with this virus, the droplets can spread six to a, a few feet more than that. So when somebody coughs or sneezes, if you're within six or seven feet, there's a, a likelihood that you're going to be impacted by the droplets. Whether or not it becomes ill is a different story. But the possibility to be infected is very real. When you look at continuity of uh, a business, you have to think about your people and protecting them, but also, when possible, allowing them to continue to work at home. But a component of that is when they work at home, is having personnel practices in place that they understand they're not going to be penalized if they don't come to the office. Uh, the other component is supply chain. It's ensuring that you can maintain your supply chain. Very often you can't get what you need from the country making the goods. But if you can, how do you get the supplies to your factories, to your people? There's a lot of different components to business not doing planning in an outbreak. And quite frankly, most companies don't have plans in place for pandemics. Let's talk about some history of the contagions and stats. The Spanish flu in 1918 killed between 20 and 50 million people. I was surprised at this. 2019, 2020, 4,800 people had died, 87,000 people hospitalized. And they estimate that there could be 9.7 million people get the flu this season. This impacts everybody. I'm not asking you to make a prediction on this, but just emphasize for people why this is important for people to focus on. When you think about this virus compared to the flu, the flu case fatality rate, or the number of people that die, divided by the number of people that are sick, flu is about 0.1%. This virus, it's about 2%, over 2%. So 2% of the people that get sick die. That's over twice the number uh, that received with the flu. With SARS, it was 10%. So this is not quite as, as deadly as SARS, but it is far more transmissible from person to person than SARS. Well, and it also sounds like from some things I've been reading that it's transmissible during a phase when people don't know they're infected and other people don't see that somebody's infected. So the potential to infect more people 
to me, seems higher than SARS. Is that correct? With this virus, the ability to transmit from person to person is greater than it was with SARS. Uh, with this virus, one person can transmit, on average, to about 2.3 other people. There are cases of what are called super spreaders, where one person who is uh, able to spread to eight or ten people, and we think that might be what's going on in South Korea, where one person seems to have spread to a large number of people in a church. So the transmissibility with this virus is far higher higher than some of the other viruses we've seen. Are there any preparedness models that actually work? Well, not work completely, but to some degree are more efficient than others. I think preparedness with this is fairly simple. You have to have plans in place. You have to educate your employees about how not to get sick if this thing does escalate. You have to have plans in place for work at home. You have to have plans in place for protecting your office environment if people are forced to come to work because of critical operations. You have to have plans in place for your supply chain. Now, having said that, there may be an environment where it is difficult to maintain factory operations. We saw that in China and continue to see it. Anything that can be done to do uh, remote work uh, can maintain at least part of your business operation uh, and ensure that you protect your employees at the same time. Jerry, my final question, what role do you see security played in this? How can security help contribute to this being less of an impact on us all? Security. Uh, particularly if they oversee business continuity planning, uh, can play a big role in ensuring the proper plans are in place to deal with this kind of a, uh, an incident that uh, impacts a company's operation. More fundamentally, security can play a big role in ensuring if you do curtail operations, that there is no nefarious kinds of, of, of conduct by employees, by outsiders uh, who think you might be vulnerable because you've reduced operational capacity uh, during this kind of an outbreak. So security is absolutely essential. Jerry, thanks so much for coming on Security Management Highlights. This has been very informative, and I hope people listening take this to heed and and, and help better their situation. And. Uh, I'm sure we're going to have you on again for an update because this is a developing story for sure. I really appreciate well, your time, my friend. Anytime, you know, you want to do an update here and there, just give me a call. Okay, I will. Thanks, Jerry. Thank you so much. Take care. All right, bye. My next guest is Mr. Mark Tarallo. He's the Senior Content Manager for Security Management Magazine at ASIS International. Mark, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thanks for having me, Chuck. Now, we're going to talk about some findings from the Global Terrorism Index. I find this remarkable, and I'm going to introduce it, and you just go with it. Terrorism attacks are down 50% since 2014. That is pretty remarkable. Let's hear about that. 
it, it really is. Uh, that, that statistic you just referred to is from the Global Terrorism Index, and it measures total deaths from terrorism. And the number of total deaths is actually down more than 52% from the peak, which was in 2014. Uh, 2014 is a significant year, uh, and there's a few theories why that was the peak. One was that was right before ISIS lost their, what they tried to call or tried to build as a caliphate. But basically, that's around when they lost their territory. And without that, their operations significantly declined. Another big factor there was, if you recall, if you go back about six years, there were the terrible uh, killings and terrorist operations by Boko Haram, specifically in Nigeria and a few other West African countries. Since then, authorities have gotten much better at fighting Boko Haram. So that's really helped reduce the amount of deaths they were causing because though they were, they were really a, a scourge and that they were going through school districts, killing students, things like that. There was a lot of death toll there that's been reduced. And then another final big factor is um, Iraq, which had been really very unstable, a hotbed for terrorist operations. That has become more stable, certainly not 100% stability by any means, but that stability has helped. There's been less terror operations there and consequently less death. Now, I have a theory, too, and tell me if I'm completely wrong, which I usually am, which is why I do a podcast to learn things, right? I, I'm thinking what I'm seeing on my side, and I'm talking about business and friends of mine, I see an uptake in these cyber attacks, cyber cons. My former neighbor literally was, was within an hour of almost giving $900,000 to one of these guys on a phone scam. Wow. Are they getting, are they getting smarter and saying, you know what, bombs and bullets— too logistically difficult. Let me sit in a boiler room someplace and make a thousand phone calls and get money out of people. And then we'll use that for other stuff. Well, you know, that's a, that's an interesting point. And um, looking forward, that could really come into play specifically with ISIS, because what people, what analysts say now about ISIS is that they've lost their territory their operations are way down, but they're not finished. They're still recruiting and they're actually growing with the formula being anytime you have uh, jobless, basically young males, although there's females too, but the majority still males who are feeling, you know, dispossessed and hopeless, you've got potential recruits there. So, with your point, with ISIS 2.0 moving forward, which will be ISIS without the territory, but still looking to do some operations, they could be moving more into the cyber sphere 
as you say, it's less risk for them, um, and it could be more uh, more dollars raised for their causes. So that could definitely be something uh, coming up moving forward. And by the way, your point is well taken that whenever you have a bunch of people that are sitting around doing nothing, they find something to do. Not unique yeah. to ISIS terrorism. It's it's happened throughout history. I think That's what's right. a little little different here is the world's a smaller place because of the technology. So here here's what I've always told people when they've asked me about terrorism. I say, you know what? Stop stop calling them that. First of all, it empowers them. They're a bunch of criminals, and if you treat them like criminals, you have a different perspective on it. What I worry about, Mark, is I think they're getting smart enough to become more organized as a institution, as a structure. I could see this merging into a highly organized crime outfit, as opposed to a bunch of groups scattered around waiting for somebody to send out a secret dog whistle to say, blow something up. What do you think? Uh, I think on one hand, that really has a lot of validity because it's... um, it's something that, uh, as you mentioned, you know, smarter, kind of less risk, uh, and still has the potential to, uh, to through criminal means, make them a, not, a lot of money. However, you still have other factors in play. One analyst that um, I quoted his research in my story, he was saying how moving forward, you still have Al-Qaeda, you have ISIS that's now trying to rebuild themselves, and you could have a a power struggle there. And if you do have an Al-Qaeda versus ISIS power struggle, you could have terror operations, but one against the other, or you could have both of them trying to kind of get into new markets, so to speak, new operations in different areas, that would maybe give them more visibility and a more edge. So there's definitely the validity in what in your point, but then you've got territorial factors, you've got group versus group factors, and then you also have um, economic factors in really how the economy goes. If let's just say, not to wish any bad tidings on uh, on people, but if coronavirus turns into a spurs a US recession, spurring a global recession, that could be many more unemployed around the world who, uh, who may be vulnerable to recruitment. Well, that is an excellent point. And I, I'm going to flip back to your side on this because really, if we look at this from the beginning, it's really been political at the start, right? Really not organized to make profit. The profit was what? Terror. The profit was scaring people. That was the effect. So it's That's it's right. definitely a different different world here. Um, where do you think um, where do you think we're going for twenty twenty? Any emerging trends in this area that we're we're tracking? Yeah, um, one of the big ones seems to be, I guess, like in every field, technology, and uh, you know that could mean terrorists using more drone attacks using more artificial intelligence-driven systems and devices. Um, they're in, in terms of their attacks, they're like anybody else. If you consider them to be kind of criminal versions of small militaries, 
they want to lose less bodies so why not use drones and um ai attack so i think technology is going to be one of the biggest trends really moving forward mr mark i always feel smarter when i speak with you but my stomach always hurts a little more because you got, you got the inside track on this stuff. I don't like drones. Drones are the next scourge. Always good to hear from you, Mark. We'll do this next month. Thanks for coming on Security Management Highlights. Thanks a lot, Chuck. Always enjoy it. Elizabeth Dumbas, CPP, is a physical security and testifying expert with THG Consultants and a member of ASIS International. Prior to entering the security industry, Elizabeth was an explosive ordnance disposal officer for the U.S. Army. Elizabeth, welcome to Security Management Highlights. Thanks. It's great to be here. Now, I'm really excited to speak about your profile today. You were in the U.S. Army, and you transitioned from the Army to private sector into some councils at ASIS, got your CPP. That's that's quite an achievement. Tell us how that's all come about. Well, thank you. So when I was uh, in the military on active duty, I actually learned about ASIS and uh, knew someone who was a security consultant and was a member of ASIS and just sort of learned how important it is if you want to be taken seriously in the industry to uh, to have those professional memberships and to get in, not just to have the membership, but to actually get involved with the organization. So uh, that was something that was really important to me from the beginning. So I got involved with ASIS and uh, started working with a consulting firm. And I went to the first conference in uh, 2017 in Dallas and met some people who were just, uh, I just found the whole organization was very welcoming. Uh, and a lot of people who have successfully transitioned from police and military careers into private security really seemed to just want to help me also, you know, do the same thing that they were able to do. So uh, I met people at that conference in Dallas and they introduced me to some of the councils and I sort of took it from there. I applied to uh, be a member of, uh, at that time, uh, the Leadership and Management Practices Council, now the Professional Development Council, just really made so many connections through that, and it's just really helped me in so many ways. Now, you were an explosive ordnance disposal officer. That's a very specific vertical. What made you want to go into the security side of that, and how did you find the CPP certification helped you help you get there? Because because, you know, like you say, police and military are not security per se. There's components there, but it's really not the same thing as uh, a security professional. Definitely. Well, that was one of the, uh, one of the things that I found uh, was so helpful about the CPP because uh, in explosive ordnance disposal in the military, we have both, you know, our mission while we're deployed, which ranged for me from everything to um, just sort of roadside IED uh, emergency response to uh, being a partnership chief with the Iraqi police bomb squad captains. And uh, then in the United States, we have a mission where we work with the U.S. Secret Service um, doing what they call the VIP support mission. So it's um, assisting with protection of the president and certain other dignitaries. And then we also have a homeland defense mission. So uh, a lot of that is very uh, security focused in ways that are hard to explain uh still are sort of hard for me to explain so having the cpp just sort of demonstrates that yes i understand these concepts and it demonstrates it in a way that's easier for people who aren't familiar with the military or uh, for people who had jobs in the police force the same thing uh, the cpp 
just sort of creates that baseline that shows uh, I have this knowledge. Tell me how you use your CPP in consulting. What's great about the CPP is that it is because uh, ASIS has done so much to promote, uh, especially in the security world, what the CPP demonstrates. When I tell people that I have the CPP, they, if they're familiar with security uh, and with the security industry, they tend to know what that means, uh, that I have a board certification in security management and uh, you know that I possess this level of knowledge and that my experience uh, in security is acknowledged by ASIS as being relevant to security management. Tell me what your next step is. Where, where's your career heading? My next step, well, uh, right now I'm actually working towards, uh, I'm at FSU and my goal is to get a PhD in criminology. And so I want to sort of head in two directions. I want to expand my consulting practice and also uh, eventually one of the things that I miss from the military is that teaching and mentoring aspect of being an officer. So uh, I hope to use my PhD not just to expand my consulting business, but also to um, teach some classes at the university level. Elizabeth, what a, what a great career you've had so far, and you're very young at this, and I, I think you're going to go far. Thank you for coming on Security Management Highlights. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. It's been great speaking with you as well.